Hello and welcome to Now Fear This with Becky and Marie, the podcast where we talk about all things that scare the shit out of us and a few things that don't. I'm Becky and I've got Marie and her penis hat across on the Zoom. How are you doing today? Yet again, wearing the penis hat. (laughs) Yet again with the penis hat. (laughs) And boy, oh boy, does it look like a penis. Yeah, it's... It's um, I'm fearing your penis hat today. I'm just going to put that (laughs) out there. I want to get one of those pussy hats because I think it would be an improved, like if it had little... Well, I'll get James to wear that and you wear that and we're just, you know, turning the world on its ear. How about that? <laughs> there you go. What are you fearing today? Well, you know, Thanksgiving is coming up and uh, last couple of Thanksgivings we've stayed here in Los Angeles and this year we're going to go see the in-laws for uh, Thanksgiving. Oh, going to Texas. Going to Texas. So there's a few things I fear about that. One is I do fear the very long prayer that James's dad usually does before the Thanksgiving meal. Really? <laughs> it's usually like grace. He says grace and it takes Yeah, he'll say grace. It can be like 30 minutes easily. Like the food is cold by the time he's done. Like he starts to build to a crescendo and you think, okay, we're about to be done. And then it continues. The pillow I'm sitting on just collapsed. <laughs> are you okay? Did you notice I'm sliding out of view? I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I literally just slid out of view. <laughs> I mentioned prayer and the devil sucked her down to the ground. Yeah. I shrank like the wicked witch of the world. Yeah. I'm sorry. I. I mentioned a few years back, I would never mention prayer again on this show. I didn't <laughs> literally bring you to your knees. <laughs> I just did that. That was so weird. Okay, hold on. Let me just re-rack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I gotta get a recording studio. This closet shits for the birds. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, his family does have a history of like long prayers at events. It was kind of funny because one year the family gathered, it was like a graduation celebration it was like at a country club and at one point everybody at this event joined into a circle to hold hands and say a prayer and again James's dad with the praying I mean we just had gotten done eating too and I actually I had just met James at this point this was like the first time I'd gone home with him to visit his family oh and um I went to this graduation after celebration with him and I was holding hands with his grandmother. And on the other side, I was holding hands with this kid that was at the party. And we're all praying for a very long time. And the kid standing next to me like rips the loudest fart ever. I mean, it was so loud. And I could not, I couldn't control myself. I just started laughing, but it was silent laughing. And I was just shaking like this and like, kind of oh no other people heard it and then me shaking and laughing started like the whole group of people laughing and I mean people were laughing and shaking and his dad continued unabated nothing is going to stop this prayer exactly (laughs) so so there's that it's gonna get finished the other thing I'm kind of hearing about the holidays is James is very traditional about his Thanksgiving food Like he wants everything to be like very specific. Like if you don't do anything special to the turkey, the the mashed potatoes, they can't be like garlic mashed potatoes or Parmesan. It has to just be potatoes. And then he likes stovetop stuffing. 
and the green bean casserole that's like out of the can. So it's like all like that. So if we go somewhere and somebody makes like chutney orange sausage stuffing, I'm going to get to hear about it the whole week. My goodness. Well, like ruin Thanksgiving. You know. How big of a um, gathering is this? Not a very big one. So we usually gather with his dad for lunch and there's about five of us and then with his mom for dinner. And that's, I, I say five, like my, my net, my nephew, my nieces and nephews add to the numbers, but like in terms of adults, there's five of us. Yeah. So it's not a big gathering. Anyway, that's what I'm fearing. I'm fearing just normal Thanksgiving fears, weird food, long prayers. Before I ask you what you're fearing, I was also fearing cranberry sauce out of a can, but we could talk about it. I love cranberry sauce out of a can. Really interesting. James makes it from scratch. It's just with sugar and cranberry. Yeah. So anyway, what are you fearing? Fearing Thanksgiving. People gathering for Thanksgiving in bad shitty family of origin instead of our family of choice. Bad things can come up and we don't really want to be there and neither do they and there's a lot of political disagreement right now. Um, so if you don't think you can pull off going, don't go. Just, I mean, like if you think it's going to devolve into something negative or politically charged and every word you say is going to be walking on ice and walking on eggshells, it's like not worth it. It's not worth it. Just go and meet up with your friends for Thanksgiving or go to a movie, you know. It's like Christmas and anything else. It's kind of lost its meaning to a certain extent. Yeah, we just use it for an excuse to, we as in Americans, we use it as an excuse to sit around and eat as much as we want, And which I love me some buttermilk pie and I love, you know, those things, but it's like sometimes things can get real ugly and I've got so many stories about Thanksgiving violence, but I'm going to focus on one in particular. Okay. And um, this one is pretty awful. And it involves several red flags, receipts, and to-do lists involving murder, Walmart, of course. Of course. And money. So here's what happened. Thanksgiving of 2016, there's a couple named Lisa and Joel Guy, and they're in their 50s. They live in Tennessee in a really nice house. They have four kids combined between the two of them, three grown adult daughters and one 28 year old son and everybody comes into town and for Thanksgiving day and have the nice dinner and everybody was in a good mood and it went really well and the daughters went back home and the following Monday after Thanksgiving on the 28th Lisa did not go to work and that was not like her and so if she were to miss work she's calling in you know she worked in an accounting department uh, in Oak Ridge Tennessee and so her boss Jennifer called Lisa repeatedly. There was no answer. And so she knew immediately there's something really wrong here. So she called 911 and some deputies agreed to do a welfare check. And so when they showed up at the guy's house, there were both of the vehicles that belonged to Joel and Lisa in the driveway. And they looked in through the glass door. They could see groceries and some perishable items just scattered around on the floor. So that's really weird, right? You're not, if everything's okay, your perishables are not scattered around on the floor in the foyer of the house. 
So one of the Knox County Sheriff's detectives described the scene inside the home. Once they got inside, they were able to, um, they had a garage door opener. I think in one of the cars, they had a garage door opener. They used that to get inside the house to go in because they had the door unlocked in between the garage and the house. And he described it as the most horrific thing he's ever seen in his entire life, what happened inside that house. So he said, and he and the other deputy who walked up said that when you get close to the house, especially once you got in the garage, you could feel the chemicals in the air. There's like a very strange chemical smell and it was very, very hot. And so one of them, I think he said the words he used, he said his, his forehead started tingling and prickling from the chemical smell. Now to me, I'm like, shouldn't you run? Is there maybe gonna be a bomb or a, you know, stove's gonna explode? I don't know. They went inside and it was hot, hot, hot. It was like 93 degrees in there because the thermostat had been turned up to 90 and then other like floor heaters that had made it so hot in there. And one of the detectives said he could see that there's something boiling in the pot. You could feel the heat coming off of the stove. Oh, I'm kind of sitting here going, what's boiling in the pot? Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Bad. Okay. So they opened the lid to find Lisa's head. Oh my gosh. This is the 28 year old? No, Lisa's the mom of the family. Lisa's the mom. Her head is in the pot? This is a big pot. This is like a lobster pot, right? Crazy. It gets worse. Okay. So the detectives, and by the way, I'm going to give a trigger warning here. We do talk about a lot of violence on this show, but this is some of the worst I will ever talk about. So audience, if you want to skip over the next two minutes, okay, I just, I'll see you in two minutes. Yeah. Just happy Thanksgiving. Just think happy yeah. thoughts. Yeah. Too. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> think of all the things you're grateful for, for two minutes and come back. Right. Um, so then they could hear a dog barking upstairs and they go upstairs and they find Joel, the father, Joel uh, Sr. The first thing they find is his hands, his severed hands on the floor of the bedroom and two giant plastic bin containers in the bathroom. And Joel and Lisa's torsos were in those bins covered with corrosive chemicals and at trial, the prosecutor described it as a diabolical stew of human remains. So they're looking around the house still, what's going on? Who's, you know, first of all, is it safe? Is somebody else in here, you know? Nobody else was alive in the house. And they went into the bedroom where Joel Jr. had spent his weekend and they found a backpack. Backpack contained a journal that detailed his plan to murder his parents. When you said, when you said there were like four daughters and a 28 year old son, I almost made the joke. Let me guess. One of the four daughters committed the murder. Oh, really? Because it's never one of the four daughters. No, it's never one of the four. It's daughters. always the 28 year old son. In fact, the other Thanksgiving stories I might get to, you know, if we have time for the rest of them, I might get to one more. All of them are that, that a dude comes back and yeah. Okay. Um, so he wanted to collect on their $500,000 life insurance policies. The plan was five pages long. And he wrote, one of the things he wrote is money, all mine, I get the whole thing. Which to me, I'm like, the fuck you would? There's four daughters involved. You think they're just gonna sit back and go, all right, Junior, you get everything? I don't know how it works, right? Yeah. 
All right, so I want to show you, first of all, what Junior looks like, and then we're going to talk about Junior. Oh, my. Guilty. 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 Want to describe the expression on Junior's face? Um, I, he looks very dopey. He kind of looks like a, a sheriff's deputy in Porky's. <laughs> right? <laughs> absolutely fucking deranged <laughs> now i'm gonna put links on our website by the way i need to tell you what, what my sources are uh, before i get too much further boston 25 knoxville news sentinel uh, medium.com wbir.com those are my sources for this and one of them had this just phenomenal picture of him at trial where he looks deranged you know like if if you take a, a dopey deputy from Porky's, which if y'all don't know what that is, then you're just too young to listen to this show. And you have him be startled by something that like one of the crazy kids is doing looking to the side, but he's also deranged. Like he's really, really deranged. He could be somebody from like Dukes of Hazard too. He kind of looks like got that look. Yeah, he looks like he could be a Dukes of Hazard villain. The fat cousin of Roscoe P. Coltrane. Yeah. All right, so this note, and I'm also going to show you this note. I'm going to read you part of the note that they found that this guy wrote to himself of his list of how he's going to get, you know, how he's going to pull this off. I want you to look at the handwriting. If you wonder whether or not he did it, just look at the handwriting. And then I'll read you some of the things he said. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's the handwriting of a fucking psycho. Yeah. Okay, we're going to get to who he is here in just a sec. But I just want to make sure I understand. Did he just kill the mom and dad or did he kill any of his sisters? Killed the mom and dad. The sisters went home Thanksgiving night. Never, they didn't know anything was wrong. So they had a nice meal and then I'll Gomer or whatever his name is. I'm going to get to Junior and what he did. Junior killed his parents after dinner. Yeah, over the weekend, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who go home for Thanksgiving and hope to kill their parents after the, the dinner. They just don't. <laughs> Wait till you eat first. Let her cook you one last meal. Is that yeah, what you're I mean, well, yeah, at first you're going to at least eat before you commit the murder. And usually it takes the conversation at the dinner table to lead to the murderous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll get to what some of the sisters said when they, because they did talk at trial, some of the sisters about what happened that day, that day and stuff. But I got to get to the plot. We gotta get to the plotting and the planning of this guy. Okay. Now here's some of the things on his murder to do list. All right. Get him on the ground. Kill him with the knife. Clean up mess from him before she gets home. Kill her with the knife. Then he said, "Kill the dog" and crossed it out. And then oh, said, "Take nice. dog." Yeah. And then he said, "Take dog with you." Okay. <laughs> Place her in shower, turn on hot water, and point at her to get rid of forensics. Remove her clothes and take them with me for disposal. Place him in plastic bin and use it to get him into the upstairs bathroom. Cut off his arm and plant his flesh under her fingernails. Now I want you to just drill down with me for a second on that particular point of what his plan was. What the fuck do you think he meant with that? Cut off the arm, plant DNA under her fingernails, and then the police are going to think, oh, the guy cut his own arm off and she scratched him? What are you talking about? Just wanted to cut his arm off. I mean, what are you talking about? 
Although um, I, I hate to distract you, but occasionally you say things that would be great money-making ideas. Oh. A murder to-do list pad. I mean, we could probably sell that. What? You know, murder checklist? Yeah, you know those pre those sheets that people have that are like groceries? Yeah, but instead it could be a murder to-do list. Okay. We'll come up with a mock-up for that and then we'll start selling that on our website. That's not that's not gross. No, that's completely classy. We always like <laughs> that's about the classiest thing we've come up with yet. Yeah, we'll we'll set the type in something fancy. Go ahead, continue. It's really this is a great list too. Plant his flesh under her fingernails. Place her hand with his DNA so that his DNA is not washed away by the shower. Use sodium hydroxide to destroy his soft tissue and something bones for transport. Okay. And then baste one hour to accelerate. It says based. That's his mom's head. I don't know. I don't know. Flush sodium hydroxide down the toilet, wash out with handheld shower, and then direct handheld into the toilet to flush anything out of the pipes and into the public waterway. Other things it said included, get killing knives, flush chunks down toilet, not garbage disposal, get a sledgehammer to crush up bones, and body gives time of death alibi. Okay. He also, let me get, no, let me tell the next thing. One of the couple's daughters, Michelle, testified during his trial that she recalled seeing blue containers in her brother's car over the holiday. She saw them in the backseat of his car. So he rolled up there on Thanksgiving with that already in his mind of what he knew he was going to do. So apparently blood stained the walls and the floors and the piles of clothing were left where they had been cut from the bodies after the murders. The police found the bleach, acid, um, peroxide, rubbing alcohol, and the odor of death mixed in with the smell of the chemicals. So, who is this dude, Joel Jr., the deranged son of Joel Sr. and Lisa? Jr. graduated from high school in uh, Natchitoches in 2006, the Louisiana School for Math, Science, and the Arts. He had previously attended another high school, but had never worked and had always been supported by his family. He attended both George Washington and Louisiana State Universities and lived in Baton Rouge until the murders in 2016. He had supposedly been studying to become a plastic surgeon. He had been in college for nine years. Okay. His mother and his father had decided enough is enough. Homeboy ain't never gonna finish college. He's not gonna be a plastic surgeon. We're tired of paying his bills. So they wanted to retire. They were, they had already bought another house, smaller house they were going to move into. Mom didn't want to work anymore. Dad had a very successful, uh, I think he works as a, he works as a chemical engineer, I think. She didn't want to work at the accounting job anymore because apparently she had told her other daughters this, her daughters this, that her job essentially was just to give her son money. So her paycheck just went to him and he refused to get a job. So nine years of college had nothing to show for it. The parents wanted to retire and they were about to cut off their grown ass son so that they could do so. Well, he gets wind of this and he decides he's got a solution. Nobody will ever look at him. So on November 7th, 
the police work was really good in this one, I must say. Very detailed. They have video surveillance, they have receipts. They figured out where he bought everything. So November 7, 2016, he purchased hydrogen peroxide and something called muriatic acid. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, from a hardware store. On the 18th, he purchased a timer, bleach, and extension cords. <laughs> On the 19th, he purchased his murder weapon. Do you know, um, I don't even know how to pronounce this. It's spelled K-A-V-A-R, knife, K-Bar knife. You know, I'm not familiar with them. So I'm going to show you what it looks like. This is what he decided would, would be his murder weapon. It's actually pretty scary looking. Okay. It's a long knife. Yeah. yeah the wooden handle. Um, and so that was on his murder to-do list to, to purchase this K-Bar knife. And on the 21st of November, so a week before they are discovered, Junior made his final purchase, plastic 45-gallon containers. Was this guy obsessed with Breaking Bad or what? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think he watched like episode three and just went, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so family goes up there for Thanksgiving on that Thursday. He stays that Friday night. He stays that Thursday night and that Friday night. And sometime on that Saturday is when he did the murdering. So Saturday, the 26th, Lisa went grocery shopping at Walmart and Joel senior was home alone with junior. And so this is when he decided to implement his plot was when mom was out of house. So Junior walks into the exercise room where his father is and attacks him with that knife. Now, Senior fought back and it was very, very violent. And total, he was stabbed 42 times. Wow. Yeah. So the entire exercise area was covered, the walls, the ceiling, you know, in blood. The exercise machine had been flipped over because they'd struggled so hard. The blinds were in the curtains were torn. I mean, this man fought his son for his life. And I just wanted to drill down on that for a second. The notion of killing someone that not only have you known your whole life, but are literally the reason why you're in this world is one thing. But to do it with a knife, that is so fucking personal. Like, People don't tend to do that with a knife. They tend to kill their relatives with guns or poison. But he just wanted to be as close as possible to it. You know, what is that? Well, and also like the cutting up of body parts and mutilating it and all that. I mean, there's something else going on here than just like his list was more like a recipe for a sloppy murder. Like the stuff he's got on there makes no sense it's just going to make it as horrific and and laden with evidence as possible exactly exactly i I just don't understand his plan his plan was more a plan of vengeance than to actually get away with it yeah that's part of it for me is what i don't understand about junior is the long-term planning i mean at least a few weeks which you could tell me it was longer than that that's just when he started buying things he could have had that plan for months who knows and this is what you come up with this is what you think is going to be the thing that's going to get you half a million dollars that first of all you didn't make the bodies disappear second of all you were the last person to see them alive i mean then let's get even further into what happened 
he was injured by the fight with his father. He had injuries all over his hands and he was hurt pretty bad with those. They were bleeding and stuff. Well, his mother, Lisa, gets home and she has the groceries from Walmart and she sets her groceries on the ground in the foyer and walks upstairs. And that's when she's attacked by her son. And she too fought back, um, but he ended up stabbing her 31 times and, and stabbed her so deeply. And the, the battle was so harsh that she broke nine, nine of her ribs were broken in the attack. Isn't that something? Your own mother. And so when they finally did the medical exam, they realized, or they counted the 42 stab wounds and they discovered that Joel Sr. had knife wounds in his lungs, his liver, and his kidneys. And the wounds were so severe, his ribs were scraped and in some cases cut clean through. And part of that knife was actually broken off and they found it embedded into one of his shoulders. So then, Junior severs his father's hands. Then he severed his arms at the shoulder blade, removed his legs at the hip and his right foot. Now, you have done this horrific thing to your parents and you sit there for however many hours to, to break apart their bodies like you're breaking apart a chicken for dinner, you know? Not to mention the fact that if his whole thing was to murder them, break their bodies apart, and then either use the acid or some form of disposal, he has already spread blood all over the house. So his plan has failed. Like, if you're going to do this, you need to, like, dose these people with sleeping pills, then, like, Dexter style, put their throats up the room with plastic, you know. And- yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you planned to do this while they were awake, for one thing. Like you just said, do it at night when they're asleep. Give them sleeping pills, whatever, if you're you're determined to stab them. But then, hold on, hold on here. You do it when they're awake. You do it while your dad's working out. He's already got adrenaline spiking and everything when he's working out, right? I mean, he's like, his heart is pumping and- It's illogical. It does not make any sense. It's almost as if- the deranged deputy from Porky's didn't have a really good head on his shoulders. So the mom was stabbed 31 times, ribs were severed, and then her legs were cut off below the knees and her arms at the shoulder. Now, I don't know what he used to cut off her head, but he put it on the pot and, and heated it. And I don't know what this means. Tell me what this means. At the trial, the medical examiner said that Lisa's head was not just severed, but broken off with force as in he's pulling it and chopping at it i think he probably tried to sever it and he wasn't able to so then he once he got it to a point he just yanked it off the worst thing i've ever heard it's pretty terrible oh that's your mother this brings me to a point which is okay good i'm ready to take a break (laughs) i've dealt with this with people in my life right You always have these relatives or people who can never seem to find a job or always have problems. And in particular, parents deal with this where they have that one kid that can never get a job that always lives in the basement, right? And they're always afraid to cut them off because they're afraid the kid's not gonna be able to make it on their own. And I've always advised people, throw people 
into the fire, cut them off, and they'll find a way to make it, you know? But in an attempt to help their sister or your brother, your son or whatever, you just entitle them. You make them entitled. And I've heard this numerous, numerous times that when you allow somebody to have something for nothing, they feel that they're entitled to it and they become angry when it's taken away from them. So I think that a lot of parents that are enabling their kids not to take on grown-up responsibilities and just giving everything to their kids it stunts their kids emotionally and mentally and socially. And again, they feel as though something is being taken away from them when it was never theirs to begin with. Someone was being generous. Exactly. You think of, okay, your kid's 28. The kid is, and I'm not saying kid, I mean son, you know, their son is 28. And they think, okay, we're finally going to do it. Let's do it. Let's finally say it's over. We tried to, tried to do it before and it didn't work. We're doing it this time, right? The worst they think is going to happen is the kid will get mad. Our son will get mad. He might yell at us. He might whatever. But that's the worst thing that's going to happen. I imagine they never fathomed, never fathomed in a million years that he had this murder kit in his car and that the blue bins were meant for their bodies. I don't disagree with you, but you have to think about this. When you let it go on to age 28, what skills has this person developed to live on their own? Right. So in a way, you have created a person that's incapable of, of uh, living on their own. So th that must have been very scary for him. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying I can understand where if somebody's, their world is so small that it literally exists in the basement of their parents' house, and now they have nothing, you know, that that could lead them to desperation. People have been led to desperate, but this guy also had a lot of anger, not just about his parents cutting him off. He had a lot of anger in general and right. something going, going on with him. Right. Right. He lived, he actually lived in Baton Rouge um, because he was, I think, still part-time attending. What's his name again? Hmm? What's his name again? Joel Jr. I'm calling him Jr. Junior, yeah, this is a we need to talk about junior situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, clearly the mom, and this happens quite a lot with parents, they love their child because of some genetic impulse, right? And they're not willing to address that something serious is going on. And so they put other people's lives in danger, including their own. I mean, I think that if we were to drill down on this, there was probably some violence and things going on towards the parents before this happened? I don't know that the parents were on the receiving end of it because when people do things like this, there were signs that other people probably saw, just like the kid in Houston that we talked about months ago who murdered his parents because his family, his entire family, um, but his dad survived because he'd been pretending to go to college for four years. He wasn't really graduating the next day. So he, he had him killed that night. Well, he had asked people for years to murder his family for him. Right. Right. I mean, so there's other people that probably knew something was going on or that there was a big problem with this guy, but maybe not his parents. He might not have aimed it at his parents. Maybe not. But like in the, in that, it's a fictional story, but it's kind of a, based on people's experiences, the We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is a novella that got turned into a movie. 
the son is verbally abusive towards the mother and also doing passive aggressive violent things to her but it's only seen by her and then when other family members are around he acts really sweet so sometimes things like that go on there's a lot of manipulative behavior it's like women that come forward that I can't even believe they've been in an abusive relationship for 15 years like they nobody knew so I don't think that somebody just is a model son and then all of a sudden cuts off mom's head and puts it in a lot no 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 he's not a model son obviously he's a good shit you know who couldn't even manage to get out of college in nine years and I know people who are dumber than a box of rocks who managed to get out of college in nine years you know yeah Um, and he wanted to supposedly study to be a plastic surgeon like kid you were never going to be a fucking plastic surgeon yeah um but there's something really creepily ironic about that and the way that he did that stuff to his parents you know because he'd probably taken medical biology classes or whatever you know well when i was a kid i remember just being desperate to get away from my parents it's shocking now it's like it's reversed and now the parents are like how the fuck do we get rid of our kid it's a thing i know like, I just um, want to stop working and stop supporting my 28-year-old kid. But if you, there's siblings involved, it makes the family dynamic really ugly, too, because they're probably the siblings, and I know families who have this, where one sibling gets everything or a lot of money, and the other siblings are like, what the fuck? I work. Why don't you give me money? You know, I'm not the bum, but he's a bum, so you give him money? That doesn't make any sense. Or if you that watch, is such a common thing. If you watch um, Intervention, the kid who's the addict gets all the money and the attention mm-hmm. And the other kid is just sitting there like, what am, who am I over here? Nothing. So can we get back into more disgusting violence here? Please. Okay. Happy Thanksgiving. So one of the things that this fucking asshole junior did was he cut large gashes in the bodies of his parents to pour the chemicals into, believing that the chemicals would seep more quickly and that the bodies, I guess, would dissolve like he thought that they would. But in the assault on his dad... Junior actually got such injuries on his hands and his arms that about 3.30 that day, he went back to the acid room. Walmart. Sorry, Walmart. I'm sorry. I'm very bad at this game. Man, we just talked about Walmart. I apologize. I try to block the existence of Walmart out of my mind. As we all should. Yeah. So he goes to Walmart's first aid section, gets himself some bandages and ointment. Okay. And then he purchased alcohol, isopropyl alcohol, not booze, and some hydrogen peroxide. And one of the other things he did was he set a future sent text message from his mother's phone to try and make it seem like she was alive like the next day or something, you know, like somebody was going to get a text from her saying hi or whatever. So Sunday, November 27th, he's like, later days, turns the heat up to 90. Turns on the heaters, boils his mom's head on the stove, and takes back off to Baton Rouge. Now, killing people's hard work, I guess, right? He just like got really fucking tired of it in the middle of this whole scene and went, meh, not time to go take care of those wounds. So he drives to the student clinic at the university, and the person there has to take care of his gash and like his thumb and his arm and stuff. Now, your parents are going to get found murdered. They're eventually going to be found. You did not make your parents disappear. You don't think that that person at that student clinic is going to remember the guy with a big gash on his foot or I mean, on his hand and his arm. How bad is this fucking plan, dude? <laughs> okay. So that was on Sunday. His parents' bodies were found following 
actually i have to say the most scary part of the story is trying to treat like a major gash at a student clinic (laughs) my experience with going to the student clinic is they have so many questions about your sexual past and your drug usage you walk in with a gash in your thumb and they want to know how many people you slept with (laughs) yeah you're you're bleeding out right right as you get to the section on like anal sex you know (laughs) like hey my questionnaire i need to know about your sexual partners I just got a giant cut on my arm. I'm not here for, you know, STDs or like to get into a drug treatment program. I just need this gash sewn up. (laughs) It didn't really take police very long to figure out what he had done and who had done it. I mean, pretty much the murder death kill list was like, oh, okay, you know, where's Junior? Let's go find him. And he left his list at the house. Yes, that was in the backpack. The police found the morning that they went there. How stupid. Okay. That was on the, immediately it was that day. They found the boiling head on the stovetop, went upstairs, found the backpack. There's the note. Yeah. Another another little tip. If you're going to murder somebody in this way, make sure they have money in the safe or something you can just take with you right away. Because even when it's like a legit death, insurance companies take years sometimes to pay you out. Like yeah, they do everything yeah. within their power not to pay you out. So well, this idea if, is, if there's a murder, they might wait to see if you were the one who did it before they, yeah. And this guy didn't even go to trial for years. He finally went to trial September of 2020. Yeah, I mean, you got to mail all the stuff to the insurance companies and they're very meticulous. Like they, there's things, there's a 5 million reasons why they won't pay out. So it's not a good, insurance policy is not a good guarantee. Um, I think um, I think in the last few episodes, you were talking about, I think it was the Candyman episode where the guy in Houston killed his kid for insurance money. And you pointed out, rightly killing people for insurance money is not sustainable (laughs) because you're going to run out of people to kill that's one of the reasons to not kill people for (laughs) insurance money so he eventually eventually finally went to trial four years later the jury found him guilty and he did some weird stupid shenanigans where he tried to forced the judge to let him represent himself and said, I'm going to make you give me the death penalty because I deserve it. And the judge is like not having it. And the prosecutors didn't ask for the death penalty. They just wanted him to have to suffer for the rest of his life. So he was convicted and he was put in jail for, I mean, prison for 51 years before it's possible that he might have a parole option, you know? Um, So he'll be in his seventies. 80s actually before that happened because he was in his 30s by the time he was finally convicted wow so because he's white because i know people who've done less stuff who end up with the death penalty or like no chance of parole and this guy like if there's ever an example of remorseless i mean cutting off heads and boiling them in pots and mutilation and your own parents it's yeah well he also is still not so deluxe so he's in prison Nutso Deluxo. I've never heard that. Nutso Deluxo. He's not throttled back on the being nuts. So I'm just going to read you the sentence, okay? In the news article. The man who stabbed his Knox County parents to death, cut up their bodies, and tried to dissolve the evidence, now claims 
He's had fantasies of gouging out the eyes of fellow inmates and could be a threat to the general jail population. He's the one who said it, okay? He wrote a note collected by authorities. I don't know who it was directed to, but it says, I'm writing because I don't want to end up with a disciplinary infraction or worse, more criminal charges, nor do I logically believe that this gentleman, his cellmate, deserves to be blind. <laughs> okay. Well, then don't stab his eyes out. It's pretty simple, right? And then he says, I don't know what to do. I shouldn't be allowed access to another person while they're unconscious. <laughs> Dude, conscious people aren't your bag either. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So this was right after he was convicted and put in the prison. Mm -hmm. Six days later, within a week, he's writing this letter. So he was convicted of the murder of his parents and abusing their corpses and all these things. And he's still full throttle on the crazy. And um, I don't know what they did with him. I don't really care, you know. And um, hopefully they moved that guy out of his room and <laughs> didn't yeah, get right. blinded by this dipshit over here who looks like the fucking crazy deputy from Horkies. Oh, um, yeah. So this has some of our favorite themes of murder plotting, right? You know, the receipt. He had literal receipts. He had the murder to-do list. Going to Walmart. There was money at stake. And how? And he went to. And he bought like the acid, he bought the, the bins, he bought all these things. It's like, dude, why what do his sisters not... have to say? What do you mean? Did they, did they make any public statements about him? Or... Well, the only thing that they did say at trial, which I thought was really weird, not weird, but well, they pointed out something weird, that during the Thanksgiving meal, that it was a very nice and fun and pleasant day that junior was actually in a good jovial mood which was very unusual that normally he would just be pissed off and sullen and just sit over in the corner glaring at people and so what people uh, you know authorities and experts believe now is that was just his way of drawing attention away from him because if he behaved the way his brain wanted him to he would have probably somebody might have said hey i'm gonna look in your car for a a knife and a you know acid or whatever because those blue bins are fucking weird you, know? you, you see i guess i'm one of those people like if there's one family member that is like super unpleasant to be around then i just don't go to family gatherings i don't put up with that kind of stuff like family members that hold everyone hostage like it sounds like he was a disagreeable guy yeah i don't know i didn't read details about like who he was other than that that they were surprised mm -hmm. that he was actually in a, you know, okay mood that day. But I'm more of the, I'll ignore the person. You can be over there and be sullen, but I'm just going to ignore you. Yeah. I'll, just, I'll aggressively ignore you. Like, I got nothing for you. I'll be over here with the adults, you know? Um, so this is, unfortunately, not the only Thanksgiving violence case. I'm going to just list out a couple of these other cases. There's a guy named Christopher Gaddis who murdered his wife, stepdaughter, and boyfriend while they played a board game on Thanksgiving. That doesn't surprise me. My board game nights get pretty... pretty <laughs> There's a guy, Paul Michael Merrig. This one is a little creepy. And this one speaks to what you said about warning signs. So he went to a family gathering on Thanksgiving, and there were a bunch of people there. I think like a dozen people there. And he waits again, like the other guy, gets through Thanksgiving dinner and then starts murdering people. So he killed four people, including including a six-year-old little girl. Ugh. 
Yeah, he killed, I think, his aunt and two sisters. Well, here's one of the things that's really disturbing. He had a long history of violence and threats against his sisters. He was, like, weirdly obsessed with them. And one of them had actually successfully gotten this restraining order against him in the previous years. She wasn't at this gathering. Well, he asked his parents about coming over to Thanksgiving a few days before. And he never actually committed to attending. And I don't know if he was actually invited or told not to show up. But the parents alerted their hosts, Jim and Muriel Sitton, that he might be coming. And his mother says to her daughter, Lisa, wow, I really hope he doesn't come and kill us all tonight. Yeah. And the daughter, Lisa, says, mom, it came to my mind, too. But don't say that to dad because dad would get upset that we had such ideas about him. And that's exactly what happened. In the weeks leading up to that Thanksgiving, he had spent thousands of dollars on at least four guns and ammunition in two different gun shops in and around Broward County in Florida. And he asked the guy behind the counter at one of the gun shops for a scope to be attached to this bolt action rifle because he wanted to use it for hunting but he didn't use it for hunting. He just started shooting people and he shot other people who were there and they survived. So the Mm -hmm. thing for me that is unsettlingly common is how many people who end up killing people, other people had said that about them before. Well, I hope he doesn't start shooting people. That's a warning sign. And like, if you think to yourself, I hope this relative of mine doesn't kill us all. There's your warning sign. Like we have to get over this obligation to family that just because you share genetics with somebody doesn't mean you're obligated to interact with them there's this whole passage in the bible that gets repeated all the time when parents don't like the way their kids are behaving it's like honor your father and mother and i don't think you should dishonor your father and mother but that passage doesn't mean let your parents do whatever they want to you it doesn't mean that They can abuse you and molest you or commit acts of violence against you or take advantage of you. And it's the same thing with siblings or aunts and uncles or or whatever. Like if somebody doesn't have your best interests at heart and they're dangerous, you shouldn't have a relationship with them. The end. I would say emotionally dangerous too, either way. You're not obligated to keep that person in your life, much less show up at Thanksgiving or allow them to show up at Thanksgiving. And we're talking about not just people like who just maybe don't get along, which everybody doesn't have to get along, but within groups of friends that are close, not everybody loves each other every minute of the day. Right. But for people who are abusive verbally or mentally, or obviously physically, you are absolutely not obligated to show up with that. Absolutely. And I have, it's been hard, but over the years I've had to come to the conclusion that I don't have to have a relationship with this person. I am under no obligation to take care of them or have a relationship with them. A relationship involves two people treating each other with mutual respect. So if somebody wants to cut you off and not talk to you or, or be passive aggressive or, or whatnot, life is short. Spend time with people who like you and think the best of you and want to have a relationship. Since you said passive aggressive, I will give you my one piece of relationship advice that you can carry into Thanksgiving carry it on for the rest of your life dear listeners because it works and if you have a passive aggressive manipulator in your life start doing this 
And then one or two things will happen. They'll change or you're going to stop communicating with them. Mm -hmm. So if you have the passive aggressive person in your life who says one thing when they mean another, because passive aggressiveness will never own up to what they really think and feel, all you got to do is pay attention only to the words they say. So if they say, well, I'm fine. You don't have to come over. Okay. I won't come over then. See you later. Mm -hmm. That's all you have to do. You ignore everything else other than what you want to hear. And they're going to be forced to either tell you what they really think and feel, or you're never going to go over there and see them again. And either way, you're going to be so much happier. Yeah. I mean, another really good example, and I think this happens a lot, is where somebody just stops talking to you, which I think is passive aggressive, right? They're hoping that you will um, seek them out and like beg for forgiveness or whatever they're hoping for, right? They're trying to get a rise out of you. If somebody says they don't want to talk to you anymore, take them at their word. Move on. Don't talk to them anymore. Exactly. Take them at their word. That's exactly what I mean by passive aggressive. That's on them. I mean, but I I just think there's so many ways that people try to manipulate other people. And okay, that's what you want. And I agree with you. No, well, I'm fine. You're fine? Good. I had a conversation with James about this one time because sometimes... He just tries to be nice or chivalrous or whatever. And I'm like, if you tell me I don't need to be picked up from my surgery, I'm probably not going to pick you up from your surgery. So if you want, <laughs> I'm just throwing an example out there, right? I'm just saying like, I do, I think a lot of times people aren't being passive aggressive. They're just trying to be nice and they want you to make the right decision. Just say what you want, you know? But I mean, I think this is more about like trying to protect yourself. And there's this myth out there that blood is thicker than water and like parents always love their children and kids are always going to help their parents when they get older. And and those things just aren't true. Not to sadden everybody, but there are bad family members. There are parents that don't love their children and just get some therapy or do whatever you need to do. But you need to learn how to sift through the people who don't have your best interests at heart. And unfortunately, these parents, like you said, they were like, well, I never thought my son would kill me, right? Nobody ever thinks that. But you got to look at the signs. You got to like be aware. Sometimes your intuition will speak before your brain can catch up. And so if somebody says, I hope they're not coming to kill me, you need to listen to that truth. You've just spoken some truth. Now, the truth you might be speaking is, they're dangerous. Maybe you don't literally mean they're going to murder you tonight, but there's a part of you that knows that you're in danger from that person. And you need to start listening to that signal. That survival signal is trying to talk to you. And you don't make gallows humor jokes about people. But it's easier to make it a joke so that you don't have to own up to it when you're wrong. But you know what? When it comes out of your mouth, pay attention to it because it came out of your mouth for a reason. Exactly. Like when you make the decision with your friends to go bungee jumping in Mexico. And then you make the joke, like, I hope this isn't the last thing I do with my life. There's a reason why you make that joke. Probably shouldn't bungee jump in Mexico. Exactly. If you're standing on the thing and you're thinking that, then you probably shouldn't. Exactly. Exactly. I will say that as I've gotten older, so many things have happened in the lives of friends and family that I just can't believe this would have happened or this person would have done that, you know. And I am at that point where nothing would shock me, just in general are capable of a lot worse than we exactly think they are yeah and the other thing that I've learned is you don't really know what's going on in a person's head so even though people may appear to have the perfect life or 
their marriage is fully together or they're like a model citizen, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So I think those are things to consider as well. But if you find yourself using dark humor and glibly saying something about that situation or that person, just listen, just look again, think again, just take a minute, take a step back, maybe don't go to that dinner. Because what we don't know is, we both said earlier, what kinds of signs were there that other people might've noticed that they maybe could have told the parents there's something wrong here. And how many opportunities did people have in the lives of the, that family in Houston to let them know, look, your son is trying to find somebody to murder you. And then nobody did and nobody told them. Because yeah. people yeah. like to think that people are not gonna actually do the thing. So the people that he wanted to try and kill his parents never believed it was real, but it was real. And they only found out after the parents were murdered. And then they said, oh yeah, he wanted me to kill him too. Yeah. I want to believe the best about people. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's not easy in a way. I think getting away from terrible family members is similar to getting away from abusive relationship because there's so much psychology tied into it. I have to believe based on the story you told me that these two parents were living in some kind of hell with their son behind the scenes. And uh, I, I see it a lot. Mothers being abused by their sons for money and all sorts of things. And it's like, they don't even realize they're in an abusive relationship. Well, that's also my thing as well. You know, like it won't get better. If someone is abusing you, it's never going to get better. It's only going to get worse. If this person doesn't get serious help, it never gets better on its own. It's only going to end up with you dead, you know, unless you get away. But people stay in these relationships because they're scared to leave. Same thing with parents. They're scared not to give him money. They're scared to cut him off. So they operate from fear. And then eventually they've had enough, but this person is so committed to whatever you've been providing for them that that's an existential threat to them, you know? I almost wonder if, because only you know what kind of situation you're in, right? But if you're in a situation where you have a family member that you've been supporting for literally 28 years or however long, and you know that the action that you're about to take is going to send them into a state of desperation, that you take protective measures of some sort, that you set up your house with the security system, maybe you leave the area for a while so nobody knows where you are. It's kind of the same think thing. Think about this too, the same thing like when you fire someone who you think might be dangerous, you make sure that there's security there to walk them out. Mm-hmm. Maybe this family should have approached it that way or not should have. I don't want to, I'm not victim shaming, but maybe this family could have approached it that way of we're firing him and he might get violent. So let's make sure somebody's there to walk him out, you know, and he never would have had the chance to go and get the knife out of his car. I think you have to be able to assess the situation. And it's kind of like if you have a renter that doesn't want to leave a property, sometimes you have to bring the police to evict them. So that, because like, what are you going to do? Start taking their stuff out of the house and, and get confrontational with They're them? They're going to get violent with you. Yeah. I'm just saying, if somebody's thinking about doing this, that they might ought to consider what protective measures they can take. Um, Amazing how many of these stories that you read about that we talk about on this show of people who are motivated to kill for money rather than just get a fucking job. <laughs> just get a fucking job. The rest of us do it. It's how we buy food. Like, just get a fucking job. Don't kill people because you need money. Money. The dude murdered his own kid, his own nine-year-old son, because he wanted money. Uh And you know what? Murder is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Obviously, this guy gave up in the middle of his plan and went back to Baton Rouge. 
you know, I mean, it's a lot of work to murder somebody. You have to plan it for a long time. You have to clean up afterwards and you're always looking over your shoulder. You know what's easier? Getting a job. The thing about it is you're worried your life is going to be over because you lost a source of income. But then when you get caught by the police and you go to jail, your life is over. Weigh it. <laughs> yeah. Little logic. So much swimming around in these people's heads. No. So to unpack it all would be like taking too many outfits on a vacation and what that's like to unpack it, you know. So that is a really terrible analogy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> too many outfits on vacation <laughs> you heard it here folks don't take too many outfits on vacation it's like climbing around in a killer's mind <laughs> too many outfits on vacation and then packing the ones you didn't wear with the dirty ones and i don't know it's it's a thing oh is it yeah Okay. <laughs> all think, right well on that note i think happy thanksgiving folks um, yes happy thanksgiving i hope you have fresh cranberry sauce and not out of a can i like the can it goes i like it and it takes on the can shape and it like i love the can shape cranberries yuck we'll um, have you i'll we'll make cranberry sauce from scratch sometime for you you're gonna love it better well i've had it before i just like the i don't know there's something about it weird all right all right go to our website if you feel like your life needs changing it will happen slowly but surely all right bye happy thanksgiving folks Bye -bye. bye bye